0: to the National Affairs podcast. I'm Dan Weiser.
1: And I'm Devorah Goldman.
0: And we are the assistant editors of National Affairs. National Affairs is a quarterly journal of essays on domestic policy, political economy, society, culture, and political thought. It aims to help Americans think a little more clearly about our public life and rise a little more capably to the challenge of self government. It is published jointly by National Affairs Incorporated and the American Enterprise Institute.
1: Today, we're excited to be talking with Samuel Hammond, who is a Director of Poverty and Welfare Policy at the Niskanen Center, where his research focuses on the effectiveness of cash transfers and alleviating poverty, as well as how free markets can be complemented by robust systems of social insurance. He previously worked as an economist for the Government of Canada.
0: Sam wrote an excellent essay for us titled The China Shock Doctrine from our fall 2019 issue. In his piece, Sam uses the example of American trade with China to argue that traditional economic doctrines about trade and development allied crucial complexities, complexities that are reshaping our politics right now. Sam, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So just to start off, Sam, let's start off with what you actually began your first line of your piece with. So on October 10th, 2000, President Bill Clinton signed Permanent Normal Trade Relations or PNTR, which paved the way for China's entry into the World Trade Organization one year later after that. This was widely supported by both parties in Congress, particularly Republicans. And so why at that point in the early 2000s was trade with China so popular of an idea? It was really the culmination of an infatuation
2: with trade and globalization that was going on through the 90s. We'd had normal trade relations with China since the late 80s, and PNTR was essentially saying that this was being made permanent. It was a big precondition for China entering the World Trade Organization. And I think if you go back and look at historically, around the world, little democracies had leaders that were very gung-ho on globalization. And this is really the culmination of a trend that we saw earlier in, in smaller maybe less populous countries. But the expectation was China would just be the next stage of this evolution.
1: You also note that despite the initial consensus backing trade with China, we've since learned that PNTR has been implicated in some significant and distressing trends of American life. What are some of those trends and how did trade with China contribute to them?
2: Yeah, it's striking. If you look at basically all the big trends that people talk about these days, all the, the big negatives, even rising concentration, falling labor share, specifically in this case, I discuss rural economic decline, rising urban rents, mental health, and so public health problems in declining areas, including the opioid epidemic. A lot of these really kick off in the, in the post-2000 era and have all been in various forms of research been implicated with permanent normal trade relations with China and the so-called China shock, which was a, a name coined by David Otter and his co-authors, who really sort of the same way that the NK and Deakin work brought to light the deaths of despair The China shock work really brought to light the massive impact of Chinese import competition on U.S. manufacturers, something that, you know, a lot of people understood, but not quite at that scale and what the gravity of the situation was. And prior to that work, didn't have the data to really show these correlations between other indicators like falling family formation, like rising rates of single motherhood, drug and alcohol abuse in communities that had a factory disappear. So that work was really the prerequisite to understanding how all these trends may have been connected. Even even think something sort of abstract like falling labor share of income has been implicated in the fact that when a manufacturer disappears, people working in jobs that previously had pretty high pay for middle skill workers move into lower-paying service sector jobs. If you do a cross-correlation of that with broader trends and labor share of income, the national economy, it's actually a big factor. So all these trends have been sort of oddly tied up with the China shock and and it's one of the reasons why I think
0: it's still, even though it gets talked about a lot, a very underrated epoch, epochal shift in the U.S. economy. And yeah, Sam, in terms of the effects of the China shock, you have a good point in your piece that it's not necessarily what you'd expect based on an economic theory you'd read in a textbook. I mean, obviously, you still get gains from trade and interdependence promotes peace around the world. But as you, I think you put in your piece, uh, these are abstractions and they kind of allied some complexities. And I think you're referring to some of these complexities there, but talk a little bit about that difference between theory and practice here.
2: Yeah, so in the standard economic textbook, you pick up any second-year undergraduate text on international trade theory, begins with the story of comparative advantage, a term that comes from David Ricardo, and the classic example is like guns and butter or wine and wool. It's always kind of alliterative, or something. Yeah. <laughs> and the idea is, well, two countries, even if one country is more productive in everything because they're a more advanced economy, the opportunity cost of doing everything on your own is greater than if we specialize in trade. So, you know, one of the classic examples of this in in a kind of localized context is maybe a lawyer is a better secretary than any secretary they could hire. But lawyers always hire secretaries because lawyers can do way more productive stuff litigating than if they sit behind a computer answering phone calls. So even though they have an absolute advantage, they don't have a comparative advantage in being a secretary. And in some way that model, you know, has a lot of truth to it. So in the prior trade liberalizations, as I talk about with South Asia, countries like Bangladesh have really, you know, pretty accurately fit the standard account. I could even say that the China shock sort of fits that account as well in, in many ways, but Bangladesh to this day remains a labor-intensive exporter of garments, call center workers, things that require a lot of low-wage work that we don't have in the U.S. and our workers are better off doing things that are more productive. So that's sort of the classic case. The, the issue is, is, that, is that the complications come in, in a few ways. And I think that probably the most important way that's underestimated is just the role of political economy. That all these you know, these economies when economies open up to trade, they're not just like standalone private sectors that all of a sudden become merged. They also have political systems that interact with them. So in the case of something like Bangladesh, for example, being a low wage country that just, you know, overnight opens up, it didn't really impact the US as much as China because they fit into that comparative advantage. On the other hand, they've stayed relatively poor, they've fallen into what's known as the middle income trap, right? And that's partly because the interaction between the economy and the political sector. So in in a country like Bangladesh or the Philippines or Indonesia, the elites in those countries basically broker deals with multinational corporations and, you know, getting government contracts and what have you. And that sort of entrenches the incumbents, entrenches the political dynamics that keep the country Sort of specialized in that low wage work, and so countries and the middle income traps become a kind of famous thing in in economic development, and it's always discussed in terms of what's well, its a political e- economic story. But it's a political economic story that interacts with an unbalanced growth and development model, a model that says we specialize narrowly specialize in a particular sector, and then over time that, that sector and the the elites and the executives and the the interests that underlie that sector become politically entrenched as well. And then it gets very hard to break out of that path.
1: So how did China engineer what you call its meteoric rise by rejecting some conventional Western advice? How did it avoid that middle-income trap?
2: So, you know, the specialization story behind comparative advantage, not only does it sort of elide the political dimension, it's also a static story, right? It's in a one-off game, a lawyer should hire a secretary. But what if that secretary wants to become a lawyer one day, right? Maybe it doesn't pay for that secretary to become really good at being a secretary. <laughs> maybe they should diversify their skills, maybe take some night classes. And that's essentially, you know, in a kind of caricatured way, the way countries do break out of the middle-income trap. In essence, the Ricardian story said to specialize, but the way the United States, every other developed country, and, and now China and in the past, Japan, Taiwan, Korea, have become first world countries has been by diversifying So in a sense, it's the polar opposite of the Ricardian advice. And that's because it looks at things both in the political context and over time. Over time, you don't want to become narrowly specialized down that one path. And so you have to start investing in industries that you might not currently have any comparative advantage in. If we took the the sort of naive comparative advantage advice and apply it to our own lives, you know, we'd all be still crawling, (laughs) right? Because why would we ever learn to walk? Because we don't have a comparative advantage in walking. (laughs) So it's kind of tautological at that point. You have to For countries to break out and and achieve a higher level of economic development, they have to invest in things that they haven't done before. You know, a country like China was full of fishing villages and rice fields and and pretty meager economic production, dirt poor. You know, they didn't have cities like Shenzhen, which have become the center for electronics manufacturing and things like that. So how do do you get to that point? Well, it takes a lot of concerted economic planning and investment.
1: I appreciate your citing Walter Heller's clip. That An economist is someone who sees an idea work in practice and then needs to see it in theory before believing it.
2: Right. You know, that quote goes back to the. I think he said that when he was in the Kennedy administration. So, so you no know, people have always understood this and in economics, people understand this still. It's not, you know, an indictment of the entire economics profession, but it is an indictment of a kind of public relations version of the economics profession that tries to simplify these things into simple slogans and thereby missing the fact that our standard models, you can build an economic model to describe any situation. But the the standard model really misses out on the dynamics, not the static, comparative statics, but the dynamics of trade and growth.
0: And talking about those models, Sam, there's a term you use in your piece, I think it's from Joseph Schumpeter called the Ricardian Vice, this idea that there's a danger in applying simple models to complex situations or realities. Can you talk a little bit about how that has played into the U.S. situation economically?
2: Yeah, the Ricardian Vice just sort of captures what I've been saying. Schumpeter applied it to Ricardo because David Ricardo as he said, was famous for his heroic abstractions. And the more abstract your model, the, you know, almost by definition, the more detached from reality it is. We talk about this in all kinds of contexts. We have, you know, monetary models that don't have a banking sector. You know, we we have all these different economic models, and maybe they're a good first pass, but you can't take them too literally. And if you take them too literally, over time, you start to fool yourself into thinking the map is the territory, so to speak.
1: (laughs) So to go back to how trade with China affected American workers particularly, you noted that proponents of PNTR predicted that it wouldn't have much of an impact on U.S. workers, but China used the certainty provided by the trade agreement to invest in the productivity of their export sector. So the ensuing flood of Chinese imports into America contributed to the swift decline in U.S. manufacturing employment. Would you talk a bit about that and some of the statistics around that?
2: Right. So, you know, I went back and looked at the quotes from proponents of PNTR prior to it passing. And, you know, I quote one from John Williamson, who is the chief economist for South Asia, the World Bank. And he says, you know, let's look at Bangladesh. Bangladesh has matched our model perfectly. It went from a uh, poor country to one with an export industry in the garment industry, which is, you know, its comparative advantage in view of its heavy use of unskilled labor. What more could you ask for? (laughs) Likewise, for the China shock, or the case of China, you know, prior to PNTR, we had steadily increasing imports from China consumer goods, cheap toys, you know, the stuff that really was sort of like that old Bangladesh story, so we thought it would be the same. What PNTR changed and why it's been called by some researchers is the surprisingly swift decline in (laughs) U.S. manufacturing. And no one really predicted that just making the status quo permanent would have such a big effect. (laughs) But it turns out that permanence and regulatory certainty are really crucial for where factories choose to shore themselves, right? <laughs> sure. And with the the knowledge that PNTR was now like codified and not going to go away anytime soon, and especially after China joined the WTO, that gave a kind of certainty that multinationals needed to move an awful lot of production overseas and also for China to then ramp up its own investments in its export industries. And so to put that into numerical terms, U.S. manufacturing employment, the level peaked around the mid-1970s. And it had hovered around 17 to 18 million workers in manufacturing, you know, all through Korea, Japan, you know, we had obviously, you know, things shifting around, but only after 2000 did it drop in really only a matter of three or four years from that 17 million level down to more of a 14, 13 million level. So the rigorous estimates say that we lost about one to two million manufacturing jobs in a very short amount of time, which is another way in which time is a neglected factor in our heroic abstractions, time as a variable, whether jobs are lost sort of in the regular churn of the market, or all of a sudden, people across an entire industry all lose their jobs within a short amount of time. And in geographical locations where there's not a lot of alternatives, that has incredibly different implications than regular ups and downs, more gradual loss of jobs as we've like shifted from one production process to another.
0: People talk about how manufacturing started to decline in the 70s as you said but so you're saying that the shock in particular was what really reduced the amount of jobs in a in a short period of time yes exactly
2: and there's been some follow up work which I, I don't get into in the paper but but david otters more recent work has has looked at why was the china shock so shocking mm. so people have this sort of stereotype that the china shock really hit the rust belt you think about you know detroit factories or whatever really if you look at the statistics carefully a lot of that Deindustrialization had happened already as manufacturers were moving south to take advantage of lower labor standards. And this is one of the key reasons why the South Atlantic states were actually some of the hardest hit by the China shock. Over the preceding decades, they had basically poached a lot of American manufacturing from the north to take advantage of their greater, lower labor costs and therefore higher labor intensity. They were basically positioning themselves as the labor intensive country within a country, (laughs) and therefore, you know, quite vulnerable to competition from an actually super low-wage country. Even though, you know, American low-wage work is not nearly as low-wage as a developing country's low-wage work, when that country is investing aggressively to climb the skill ladder, then, you know, those jobs suddenly become vulnerable. Now, speed is a factor in another sense, because if you want a growing, developing economy, you actually sort of, you want exposure to international competition because exposure to international competition disciplines your firms makes them invest in productivity mm-hmm. makes them you know not just sit on their laurels this is kind of the fallacy of protectionism but the issue is that that doesn't just happen automatically <laughs> you know it's not as if like venture capitalists in silicon valley are sitting around saying oh, how are we going to transition these workers from uh, furniture factories to advanced manufacturing and we didn't have any really serious systems in place to do that and so i've sometimes put it this way we we only get like half the benefits of globalization. We get the first half, which is you know cheaper goods, but the second half is actually the discipline that our producers face, which then forces them to become more productive. If we don't encourage those firms to invest in productivity, then instead we we get the cheap goods, but then we also lose a lot of our productive human capital.
1: You also note that another reason for the decline in U.S. manufacturing is what's called the open innovation model. As an example, the iPhone box, which is designed by Apple in California, but is assembled in China. So how does that model work and how has that affected the U.S. labor market?
2: Yeah, the open innovation model, it's not like, a, you know, there's not like there's a document at the Commerce Department that says this is our model, but this is kind of like the de facto model that U.S. firms have been operating on since the late 90s, at least. And the idea here is that America's abundant factor is high-skilled labor. People who've gone to adv- who have advanced degrees, software engineers- people at the peak of design, the Steve Jobs of the world, right? And the open innovation model says, well, we can do the innovation, we can develop the technology, we can do the research and development. And then anytime we have to get to the job of building the thing, we can do that in the lowest cost part of the world. So, you know, I call this a bit of a fallacy because it turns out that technology cycles, not just in high tech stuff, but sort of across manufacturing, really depend on a kind of symbiotic relationship between the designers and the fabricators. And when you segment the market and you take your fabricators and producers and plant them in a, in a country on the other side of the world, then you slow down the cycle because all of a sudden the people doing the actual design and specs are literally talking through translators to try <laughs> to try to figure out, you know, why why did this batch come back broken? Like, what exactly went wrong? Or to give you a really, you know, a simple example to give the intuition. The cost of solar panels has been falling by 40% every three years or something like that. This is falling at exponential rate. It's falling according to a learning by doing model, right? So the more solar scales, the cheaper it gets. And the solar industry spends only about 1% of its budget on R&D. The reason it's getting better is because the bigger you get, the more you scale, the more you realize, hey, there's this part of this manufacturing process that we can improve and streamline and make this a little bit better. And so scaling itself has a tendency to drive lower cost and innovation that doesn't get captured necessarily in R&D. The same is true across manufacturing. If Boeing just had a bunch of designers (laughs) designing planes and all the planes were being built overseas, we wouldn't capture all that other sort of intangible forms of innovation that actually make things cheaper and make us more productive. So the open innovation model, I kind of encapsulate it in a really funny speech that Tim Cook gave at the Fortune Forum in China, where he says, you know, the interviewer asked him, "Why don't you manufacture in America?" And he says, "Well, you know, there's this big misconception that the reason we come to China is just because they are, have cheaper labor." And he says, "Well, that might have been true in the past, but today we come to China because of the skill. You know, you come to China because they have the world's best machine toolists, the people who can do the precision manufacturing that we need to build the iPhone." And he says, "Like if we came to China and tried to hold a conference with with, with the greatest machine toolists, we could fill football stadiums and." In America, if you did the same thing, you wouldn't be able to fill this room we're sitting in. And I think that really is a encapsulation of the kind of longer run de-skilling of the economy that I talk about in the piece, which is that you, 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 know, you move these workers from doing some kind of tooling and you push them into, you know, being a greeter at Walmart <laughs> or what have you, or, or worse, being on disability insurance, being unemployed. You haven't just lost the output that they would have produced or that particular job. You've lost somebody who had a set of skills and tacit knowledge that you can't make explicit like you can a recipe, but something that's embodied and what they've learned and been trained to do over over years and sometimes decades. And when that's lost, it will just simply atrophy and over time become much more difficult to get back. Because of course, if you want to train a new generation of American machine toolists, you need machine toolists to do the training, right? Yeah. You know, this is this is, you know, one of the roles that like guilds and, and professional associations have played in the past. But, you know, instead what we have is this idea that things can just move around the, the world freely, which might be true, but it has these costs that weren't properly accounted for.
0: And Sam, one of the debates that's been sparked from this situation that you're describing where we've outsourced a lot of the manufacturing overseas and we focus more on intellectual property here. Was this a conscious decision by the government corporations to outsource that manufacturing and that the... um development of skills and human capital, or was it something that just happened as an uh, unintended consequence of the China shock in trade? How, how did that happen exactly?
2: I think it's a combination of both. There, there's definitely been a generation of McKinsey-style MBAs who, you know, since the late 70s, have been trained up in this kind of Kosian theory of the firm that says, the Kosian theory of the firm is basically, you know, why do we have a firm at all? Well, it's because it's cheaper to do things internally than it is to contract out. And as, as contracting gets cheaper, then the firm gets smaller or it segments into different divisions. And, you know, that's a, a very powerful theory descriptively, but I think it also got kind of internalized normatively where they, where you had a generation of private equity people and top executives and managers who thought, well, this is actually the way we maximize profit is by outsourcing as much as we can, not just internationally, but like within the firm, like breaking the firm up, disintermediating the firm, because with falling transaction costs and and falling tariffs and, and other costs of trade, just naturally, this should be the way the economy shifts. And that's you see this too in government. There was in the 90s, there was also a big wave of outsourcing and public-private partnerships and the like. And people started to realize, well, you know, that, <laughs> again, this worked great in theory. But all of a sudden, the thing that, you know, the municipality was doing internally and now is contracting out to some consultant is costing 10 times more. And then it gets really difficult to to kind of go back on those decisions.
1: And all of this is sort of in line with your point that it's misleading to categorize workers as high or low skilled, which Tim Cook kind of made the same point in his interview.
2: Right. So like the way economists put skill into their model tends to be just through like years of education or things like that. And that can be useful, but it's not the same thing as skill. Years of education is a proxy for skill. And a simple example is you can't take an electrician and tell them to do the job of a plumber and vice versa because they've they've learned different things, right? You can't take, you know, Serena Williams and tell her to be a quarterback. Two top athletes in different, you know, sports might in some sense be similar and maybe have a very similar history or, or aptitudes. But once they've specialized or once they've acquired those skills, they're really heterogeneous. They're they're not they're not homogenous. Meaning you can't just combine them like you can combine wheat with wheat and just yeah. get more wheat and just
1: move them around on the board.
2: <laughs> right. That heterogeneity is another factor that gets missed in in our abstractions. It's a point that we've understood about capital, for example, in models of the economy, call capital K and call labor L, <laughs> right? But it turns out that you can't represent you know a factory versus a computer and just call it K for the very same reasons you can't say a plumber, or electrician, or just L, or maybe L-primed L, L primed for, <laughs> for medium skill, each one of these sort of skill sets corresponds to a labor market with this particular labor demand and a particular sort of industrial organization. And so just treating a skill as something that is about education has led, I think, you know, I think that this is starting to break now, but the last two decades of sort of conventional wisdom have, has been, you know, we basically just got to increase the rate of college education, and get it from thirty percent to hundred percent, because that's that's the way America will lead. We are the high skill, high productivity nation. We have we are going to specialize in in knowledge workers, and therefore we all have to become knowledge workers, <laughs> right? And that's just, and that means we all have to get associates degrees, and then that's not enough. We have to get bachelor's degrees, and we have to get masters and PhDs. And I think that sort of represents again a kind of internalization of the convenient fiction that we use in economics as, an act, as representing actual truth, but really it's economists have known all along that education just a proxy. It's not really the same thing, but maybe public policy makers didn't read that uh, footnote. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, you make some points in your piece about it's countries like China and Japan and Germany where they've really invested in things like robotics manufacturing, for example. And maybe that's not something that's uh, we focus on when we're talking about boosting college degree attainment, but those workers are highly skilled in a way and they're kind of dominating that industry, where, whereas we are not. Is that an example of something you're talking about where you know our single-minded focus on college degrees has obscured how we can actually advance in manufacturing?
2: Yes, I think exactly. Skills aren't just heterogeneous, people are heterogeneous. There's a ton of heterogeneity in what people want to do and desire to do and would be good at if they tried. And the idea that everyone should be an economist or everyone should be a psychologist or, or what have you, you know, we'd all just be writing policy papers for each other. <laughs> there has to be, so, there. You know, there's going to be a continuum and a really lumpy continuum. It's not two dimensional. It's like so. It's so high, higher order dimensions of the way skills can, the way you have to represent skill. That you know, maybe we should consider looking at countries like Switzerland and Germany that have vocational education beginning in in high school and different tracks for kids who maybe don't want to do a regular four year degree and be burdened by debt and maybe want to get working right away. You know, in in Switzerland, you have an option to begin an apprenticeship while you're in your final years of high school and are actually paid 20% of what a full-time employee in in that profession would be making. So you're you're earning money while you're getting your job training and you finish high school ready to enter the job market. And not only that, but you're not doing something lame. You are, you know, <laughs> building super precise manufacturing technologies Your Switzerland has one of the biggest drone manufacturing industries and design industries because they have all this incredible engineering talent. And so this goes back to, you know, the supply side matters, but the demand side matters too. It's right. sort of, if you build it, they will come. If you train it, you we will get the kind of jobs <laughs> that demand that kind of training.
1: And Sam, you spoke a bit about this earlier, but You mentioned that the China shock also created sort of stark regional divides within the country, and that a third of the population with college degrees tends to cluster in globally integrated and expensive cities, with their wages pulling away from the rest, and the regions most affected by Chinese import competition has fared much worse. Marriage rates have fallen, deaths from suicide and drug overdose have risen, and this divide has also manifested itself in our politics. So would you tell us a bit about that?
2: Yeah, I think this dovetails nicely with what I just said. You know, there's this thing called the college wage premium, and it's the premium you have for earning a college degree. And the way you measure that is to say, you know, take someone who just has a high school education and compare them to someone who has a college education, see what their wage differences are, measure it over time. What we see it's been rising, and it, it, ro- it rose throughout the 90s. It rose suddenly in the 2000s. It's kind of flatlined since then, but it's still significantly higher. Part of the the rise has actually been an erosion as well. So just having a high school education or a technical degree has declined in value. And I think this, again, goes to the kind of fallacy of using education, you know, forgetting that it's a proxy for skill rather than a skill in itself. So, you know, policymakers look around and say, well, you know, we see this rising college wage premium. That means everyone needs to get a college degree, when really maybe what it means is all the skills that we were giving people without a college degree are being eroded and atrophying. And maybe this isn't being picked up because, you know, maybe we should be looking at their certificates or, or you know, years on the job or something like that. And I think also, to some extent, and I sort of get into this in the piece too, reflects a kind of elite bias. The people who are thinking about this and, you know, writing the policy papers and, and, you know, giving the policy advice are, you know, they're types of knowledge workers. They're people who have advanced education and they're also kind of cloistered because they are in these cities that have basically become magnets for the highly skilled. I'm sure you you know this yourself. Like you, you live in a city like D.C. and and you wouldn't know that only thirty percent of the country has a college degree. And you talk to people, you know, talk to your friends. You're like they're they're astounded by that. Or like, no, only one in five African Americans have a, a college degree. Fewer than ten percent have advanced degrees of Americans in general. Because there's been this geographical sorting, you kind of forget how weird <laughs> or or unusual your particular lifestyle is or your particular
0: cohort is. And think it has to be the same for everybody else. Yeah. Sam, you also note an interesting parallel in your piece with Russia and their experience after the collapse of the Soviet Union, which was called shock therapy there, trying to do kind of free market reforms and liberalization. But there were a lot of harms to workers, particularly in rural regions. Again, can you tell a little bit about that? Sure. That was you know shock therapy in Russia
2: and to a lesser extent, Latin America, Eastern Europe, really. It, that That's the inspiration for the title of the piece. So the title of the piece is The China Shock Doctrine. And there's this kind of wacky book by a Canadian leftist, Naomi Klein, called the Shock Doctrine. It's kind of a conspiracy theory about, you know, Milton Friedman and the Chicago Boys going around the world, privatizing different countries and working with dictators and stuff like that. But it's it's playing on this, this concept of shock therapy, which comes from the economist Jeffrey Sachs. And the idea was, you know, we only have one shot to reform these countries. The Soviet Union is collapsing. We're going to go in there. We're going to try to move as much as we can all at once. You know, we have Gorbachev on our team. (laughs) And so, you know, privatize as much as you can, deregulate, end price controls, open to foreign investment. And, you know, the the kind of provocative thing I say in the piece is that this is what happened to Russia in the the aftermath is kind of like a scaled up version of what we did to ourselves, Mm -hmm. right? So, you know, because Russia was centrally planned for so long, they had these what were called monotown factories that sort of dotted the hinterland, these rural areas that were supported by factories that you know the communist commissars put there no economic rationale for them to be there. But, you know, overnight all of a sudden the forces of market logic work themselves (laughs) and and you get sudden, you know, deindustrialization and and rural economic collapse. And what do you see? Well, marriage and family breakdown, you see rising alcohol abuse. They didn't have the opiate epidemic, they had a kind of alcohol epidemic in the in the early nineties. Again in part because, you know, one of the reforms was to privatized the state liquor monopoly. <laughs> right. yeah. So it's its own version of like the Purdue Pharma kind of Oxycontin. Right. And you know, obviously, in the years that followed, Russia experienced a kind of backlash to globalization. They became much more ethno-nationalist in a way, a sort of rediscovery of, of nationalism led to the rise of a kind of authoritarian. You know, we used to say Trump was Putin-like. Maybe I can say that, that Putin is Trump-like. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, the, these these parallels, I think, aren't totally spurious. And obviously, the U.S. is in much better shape. But if we zoom in on the places that were most impacted by the China shock, I think you can safely say that we essentially took the kind of, Like, the way critics on the left had, had been writing about it in the past was... The US, the IMF, the World Bank, they go around telling these countries to liberalize. Meanwhile, they have big agricultural subsidies and they support their pharma industries and they 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 are total hypocrites. They're telling us to privatize, privatize, privatize. Well, they have sort of national economic strategy and planning. We forgot the the kind of Straussian element there. <laughs> we forgot we forgot we were being hypocrites and we're like, oh, actually maybe we should, you know, inflict this on ourselves. <laughs> and it's kind of been living with the consequences.
1: Regarding- Naomi Klein's book, The Shock Doctrine, she is one of the left-wing critics of, you know, shock therapy, the neoliberal development model. But why are many of those traditionally left-wing criticisms now being lobbed by the right? What does that say about our political realignment?
2: Yeah, it is interesting. It is really a a realignment because if you go back to, you know, 1999, the big anti-globalization protests were in Seattle and there were like leftist black bloc protesters who were, you know, throwing cinder blocks through Starbucks windows. And now you have, you know, freshman senators and the Republican Party (laughs) talking about even using the word neoliberal globalism and stuff like that. And in a sense, I think it's sort of something that explains itself. You almost have to explain why that wasn't the equilibrium in the past, right? The Republican Party historically was a kind of protectionist party. And, you know, it really was what the aberration was the fact that we had this kind of small L liberal consensus throughout the Cold War era, where, you know, you had... You know the Rawlsian liberals on the left and the classical liberals on the right, but everyone is fundamentally kind of liberal and now we're moving back to i think a an equilibrium that looks more like you know politics in other countries where you have a kind of liberal cosmopolitan metropolitan urban party that represents educated professional interests and 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 a kind of party that's more pro worker but also not about political correctness a little a little more about you know nation first and so on. That's the kind of Tory-Whig divide that you see in other countries. And I think we're sort of snapping back to that equilibrium. And one of the reasons we're snapping back is, of course, because, you know, Democrats cluster in cities. (laughs) And cities happen to be the places that are the biggest benefactors of the sort of free trade status quo, while more rural areas, uh, more working class areas, and places that just happened to be, you know, more Republican areas are the places that were most negatively affected. So the, the the realignment is is both the kind of something that you should expect. It, 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 it's sort of like a trend that can't go on forever, won't. And the kind of consensus that we held up through the Cold War era eventually had to give way once there wasn't the, the red menace to <laughs> the fear. And in fact, now, if anything, the new red menace, to the extent that China has become a kind of great power that America is in conflict with, if anything, underlines the new political realignment or the, the realignment to which we're trending, in which this foreign power who rejects the kind of neoliberal advice to just, you know, be laissez-faire and, you know, is pouring billions and billions of dollars into weaponizing artificial intelligence and, and what have you, is really emphasizing the ways in which Republicans and Republican lawmakers want to realign around their voters' interests. So it's, it's driven in part by constituents and in part by ideology.
1: So in the conclusion of your piece, you note that it's clear that our old doctrines about trade and development have failed in practice, even if they worked in theory, and that's obviously been a theme in this conversation. So even though free markets and international trade have enormous benefits and have produced peace and prosperity, they're not working as well as we all hoped. So what are you suggesting the left and right do to sort of reevaluate traditional economic theory?
2: So as I sort of alluded to before, like, you want open trade. Foreign competition is actually good for making your own firms more productive. But you have to have a strategy for having your own productive firms, <laughs> right? So one of the ideas that I sort of summarize it in the piece is saying the two lessons are, well, the lessons can be sort of embodied in this notion that history matters, that there's a time or temporal dimension to our, to our economic models, and that, that manifests in in Schumpeter's famous you know advice that you know fundamental innovation doesn't come from perfect competition, that perfect competition will give you allocative efficiency. Things will flow to their lowest cost destination, but innovative efficiency—that's where you move the production curve outward—is not well modeled by economic models. Because, you know, it really in, in economic models, innovation is just—they call it Z. It's just—it's just a letter, and they say, you know, Z went up, <laughs> and they don't really have an idea why it went up. And you know, that kind of dynamical increase in productivity really takes a level of public investment. And one of the things that you know other countries do. I'm not saying let's go, let's become, you know, China, centrally planned economy, but if you look at Germany, Switzerland, you know, to a lesser extent, Canada, you know, they have policies in place in Germany that is through a public banking system, for example, and, that, and the, the banking system does something called public purpose finance that says, you know, we're going to make an effort to invest in next generation technologies. And one of the reasons solar panels have come down so much in prices because Germany did this big push on solar panels to have some kind of national economic strategy where the U.S. says, you know, we're not going to close the borders or like turn inward and go autarkic and you know try to bring back the economy of the 50s. Instead, we're going to look forward and say, you know, how do we get people in these middle skilled or less, less than college levels of attainment into the next generation of, of skilled jobs? How do we reskill them? And how do we make the investments in the kind of commercial sector and commercial side to commercialize new technologies and take a lead and a leadership role in those places? You know that requires practicing statecraft, right, <laughs> and you know one of the nice things about consensus is you don't have to practice statecraft, but now that the this this consensus is kind of breaking down, that we have to really start thinking through what it means to be conservative and, and in my case, I say, well conservatism at its root was always about history and a recognition that our our markets are embedded in institutions and aren't just mm-hmm. intersecting curves on a piece of paper and taking those institutions and that embeddedness seriously is a good place to start for thinking about how to build a new economic agenda.
0: Yeah. And Sam, I want to ask you uh, just real quick, now kind of i conclude here. To what extent have conservatives, as you said, embraced those investments or embraced that type of agenda? Or is there a danger that they're just going to be kind of reactionary and have a sort of a backlash to multiculturalism? And to what extent are they actually trying to have a more conservatism that actually focuses more on national um, economic nationalism?
2: Yeah. So I, I sort of, you know, I cringe at the economic nationalism line a little bit, just because I think it can be confused. So. You know, there's the Steve Bannon view of economic nationalism, you know, to a lesser extent, you know, Wilbur Ross and Peter Navarro, and they kind of have a view of import substitution, right? <laughs> we throw up the tariffs yeah. and then we'll restore everything. And ironically, like I read a piece, of, you know, before the Trump election that said, we have to elect Trump because otherwise we're going to become Brazil. And, you know, Brazilification where you have like an elite and then a, a big mass of urban, urban multi-ethnic poor, you know, if anything, adopting import substitution seems to... Uh, be making us more like more like Brazil in the 70s, right? The way I think about it is less about economic nationalism than I really liked Rubio gave a recent speech on on common good capitalism that sort of emphasizes that to the extent that, you know, all countries grow their middle class and grow productive sectors for less skilled workers, it doesn't have to be zero sum. We can all export to each other. <laughs> so it's not it's not nationalistic in the zero sum sense. It's it's nationalistic in the sense that, you know, we take the nation state and an active role for government as a serious factor, and the idea that we have some level of obligation to each other. So there is this risk that, you know, as we walk along this knife edge, we tip towards the more reactionary white identity politics sort of angle. And I think that would be a big mistake in part, and I wrote this recently, because deindustrialization has affected people across the working class of all race and ethnic background, religious background too. In some sense, African Americans are, are like the original and most severe victims of deindustrialization, right? Like, the cotton belt is an example of the fact that if you use machines, if you use humans as machines, you don't have to invest in the kind of technology and productivity enhancing tools that raise their living standards. And you know, you know, long after the formal emancipation of, of slaves, the South, you know, despite having some level of catch-up growth, never had the same level of development that the North did. And so, you know... One of the, the shocking things is we're starting to see some of the same pathologies that conservatives used to write about in the context of black communities, like family breakdown, single motherhood, the crack epidemic. We're seeing parallel phenomena in rural white communities. And what is the common factor? Well, it's when good jobs disappear for for men without college education. <laughs> and, and so, you know, I would make that high on the list as a starting point. How do we bring back good jobs for men without college education and make it regardless of race? It is really a class horizontally class-based message. And I also think it points to how a future conservative movement and future Republican Party can build out its coalition. Because one thing the present realignment is doing, it was said that the conservative movement was a, a three-legged stool, right? You had sort of war hawks, evangelicals, traditionalists, and and the free marketeers. You know, the, the current Trump coalition has kind of sawed off two of those <laughs> legs, and now it's just bouncing on one leg. Well, how, how do you build out that? Right. How do you build a new stool? Well, You know, maybe there's a strategy for getting working class Hispanics, working class Asians, Mm. working class blacks, and building a coalition that really looks something totally different than the sort of post-Goldwater Republican Party.
1: Right. right. Well, thank you so much. And now we just have a bit of a closing component where Dan and I throw out some topics and we ask you to judge whether they are overrated or underrated. How about classical liberalism?
2: Underrated by most people, I would say. (laughs) I would say overrated by Dave Rubin. (laughs) <laughs> um, I think there's I think there's like a version of, it's an old meme, like, I'm fiscally conservative and socially liberal. You've never debated someone like me before, right? <laughs> and so there's a version of classical liberalism that's kind of a bit of a meme. And then there's a version of classical liberalism that says, you know, let's go back and read de Tocqueville and read Benjamin Constant or like, let's read the actual classical liberals. The one thing I, I will also say is there are no classical liberals today, because for the same reason there are no pre-socratics today <laughs> right like they are they're classical because they're in the past right and so you're just a liberal and if you think that you know maybe you love democritus but you're not a pre-socratic and you might love adam smith but it doesn't make you classical liberal it makes you something maybe you're maybe you're a libertarian but there are a lot of things that came after the industrial revolution that the classical liberals didn't anticipate including things like the welfare state including things like high technology and so inevitably you're going to have some new features in your classical liberalism, and if you just if you just go back to the memes, then you're going to miss a lot. So we're all liberals now, sort of in a way. Well, I hope not. Like <laughs> I think I think one of the like one of the things <laughs> classical liberalism you know, rests on, and liberalism in general rests on pluralism, right? Liberalism is a system, a political philosophy for uniting people with different beliefs. And if we all, if we're all liberals, then what are we actually compromising on? Hmm. What are the actual beliefs? Right. You know, you want actual factions. You want people with different beliefs. And at any point in history, the liberals, you know, who, the John Stuart Mills, who's all they believe is liberalism, like that should be a minority of a minority because really you want people <laughs> who are on the left and who Same. are on the right yeah. and and liberalism to be the thing that emerges through their, through their like the settlements that they create in politics. Yeah. Sam will ask you about another hot topic on the right, nationalism,
0: is that underrated or overrated?
2: I think it is vastly overrated in the present period it's just such a confusing word. So, you know, I'm, I'm a Canadian by birth and Justin Trudeau has called Canada the first post-national country. And that does not mean that we're all a bunch of empty vessels. <laughs> what it means is that we are actually very, have have a lot of thick national, sub-national ethnic identities, right? So, you know, Quebec in Canada is a nation within a country. Where I come from in Nova Scotia, there are large Irish, Celtic, hmm. German communities. And these you know, there are schools that still teach you Gaelic. This is what he means by post-national. You have the thick regional and historic heritage identities at at a local level. And I think the the kind of nationalism that we're seeing more of today is really a a fictional kind of nationalism that says, (laughs) you know, all these white people are going to be part of one nation, even though like you go back 50 years and the Krauts didn't want anything to do with the the Irish and didn't want anything to do with the Italians and... Forget the Polish, you know. <laughs> and now we're just all white. And like, what? Uh, this is this is totally ahistorical. <laughs> right. You know, I thought blood and soil would at least have some connection with the past, but it's actually entirely modern.
1: All right. How about vocational degrees?
2: In the American system, incredibly underrated. There's a kind of mythos, the countercultural mythos from like the Pink Floyd, you know, not another brick in the wall kind of thing. But you know, all schools are for is preparing you to be a good worker. It's like, well, actually, that's the exact opposite. (laughs) They're preparing you to fulfill a very narrow sort of James Dewey conception of the liberal citizen where you, you know, know trigonometry and civics and stuff like that. And it's like, well, that's great. You know, if, if all school is for is to keep the kids busy while your parents work, that's anything works. But, you know, there's way more to education than literary criticism. The U.S. system should should aspire to get close, much closer. You know, right now, less than 10% of education is vocational, and in countries like Germany, it can be over 50%, 60%. So there's a lot of low-hanging fruit there.
0: Last one here, Sam. Tariffs,
2: underrated or overrated? Very overrated. You know, I think it's it's interesting. The Scan Center is also known for our work on climate change. And so we, my colleagues tried to convince Republicans to support a carbon tax, maybe rebate it through a payroll tax, something like that. Meanwhile, you know, there's a lot of resistance to that idea. Meanwhile, you have Tim Cotton proposing that we have a tariff rebate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it is like the the China tax and rebate, the China tax and <laughs> dividend proposal. I think tariffs get the mechanism backwards for economic development. Countries that develop, they might have used tariffs to protect infant industries and stuff like that. But it's not mainly tariffs, it's actually exports. It's, it's, it's less about protecting us from imports than it is building up our exports and those two are not mere images of, of each other. And one of the reasons export industries are so important goes back to the political dynamic. Exporters are disciplined by foreign competitors. You know, they can't sit in the laurels. The people they're competing with for market share are outside their endogenous political system. And so to the extent that the export sector becomes a big political concern or has special power in the government, the public choice dynamic, it means that the exporter gets better if the government does things that make them more productive, right? So it aligns the public choice problem in in the direction of higher productivity. The United States, unfortunately, has, you know, less than 3% of GDP as merchandise exports, which is very small. And a lot of that is between Canada and Mexico. And instead, we have a massive import sector. And really, we're seeing the flip side of the role of export-oriented growth. We're experiencing a kind of import-oriented stagnation. And it's not that imports are bad or consumption is bad. Is that you know if you want to take the the Trump tax reform for example, the big pay for was going to be the the uh, destination based cash flow tax, the border adjustment tax. Remember, that was killed because of a lobbying effort spearheaded basically by various import concerns that were concerned that the border adjustment tax, would, the value of the U.S. dollar wouldn't raise, as it wouldn't like in the model, the border adjustment should lead to a, a total pass through and the U.S. dollar goes up. But there's a lot of skepticism that would actually work. And if the U.S. dollar didn't go up, then, of course, importers would lose because the American purchasing power would fall. And so instead, we got an unfunded tax cut. (laughs) And so it just goes to show that, you know, (laughs) you can't look at these industries in isolation. They have political implications and tariffs do nothing to help America become like the leader in advanced manufacturing. They just benefit washing machine manufacturers.
0: Interesting. Well, thanks so much, Sam. Uh, That was a great conversation. It's fascinating. We really appreciate you uh, coming and joining us here.
1: Um, Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you for having me.
0: If you'd like to read Sam's essay or other articles in National Affairs, please visit our website at nationalaffairs.com and consider subscribing. In addition to a printed copy of National Affairs, subscribers obtain unlimited access to our online archives. And you can listen to more episodes of our podcast by subscribing on iTunes, Stitcher, and Ricochet. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter at National Affairs. Thanks for listening.